May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as we march through the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that we're going to notice about Jesus's ministry was that Jesus always caused quite a stir. Jesus's ministry garnered quite a bit of public attention. He gathered quite the following, and he even gathered the attention of the societal elites, the religious elites in Jerusalem and the civil elites in the Roman Empire. We saw this quite, uh, quite clearly over the Easter weekend as we thought about the crucifixion and the resurrection. The focus is very clearly on Jesus, and the societal elites are paying a great deal of attention to him. Sometimes Jesus would have massive crowds following him. Sometimes those massive crowds would leave him. Sometimes those crowds would call for his blood. But all throughout Jesus' ministry, we can see that he attracted the attention of the average man or woman. One of the reasons why Jesus garnered so much attention was because he challenged the status quo of the day. He challenged the preconceived notions that people had developed, and he offered what the people of the day called a new teaching. Many of the things that Jesus taught and preached were new to the ears of the people who were listening to him. Many of the things that Jesus did were novel. They were brand new to the people who were witnessing them. Jesus burst open people's categories. He caused them to reconsider things that they had become certain of. And he even directly attacked some of the things that people had come to believe were sacrosanct. For example, the Temple of Jerusalem was the pride and joy of every God-fearing Jew. But Jesus taught that the whole thing was going to be destroyed and that one stone wouldn't be left upon another. Another example is the Pharisees who were feared and respected as the religious leaders of Jesus' day. But Jesus called them a brood of vipers and the children of hell. It was considered sinful or, or at least unwise uh, to mix with tax collectors and sinners, but Jesus mixed with them anyways, not approving of what they did, but calling them to live lives of uprightness and righteousness. For many who witnessed Jesus' ministry, it felt like he was turning the whole world upside down. Through his parables and comments and sermons, Jesus shed light on what had previously been dark and mysterious. Jesus challenged long-standing traditions. He scandalized many an individual and caused not a few to march away in outrage and disgust. And then, of course, on top of all of this, Jesus was also a miracle worker. He was able to do things that the average person couldn't do. He could heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, control the weather, multiply food, and so on. And so, in short, he was an incredible figure who not only had an incredible impact in his day, but is perhaps the most impactful person in human history. As we come to our text this morning, we catch Jesus still at the very beginning of his ministry. He has only just started to preach and teach in the area called Galilee. But already in these early days, Jesus has started to shake the foundations of the world he was ministering. And that's actually the title of today's sermon, Shaking the Foundations. If we look at our text, we'll see that Jesus is shaking the foundations in at least three ways. When Jesus enters into the synagogue and begins to preach, he shakes the intellectual foundations of the people who are listening to him. So that's the first way that Jesus is 
shaking the foundations. He shakes the intellectual foundations of his hearers. Second, when Jesus deals kindly with a demon-possessed man and casts out the demon, Jesus is shaking the foundations of the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is shaking the foundations of this kingdom of darkness, which has been built up in the world. Third, when Jesus leaves the synagogue, goes over to Peter's house and heals Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus is shaking the foundations of the fallen world. And so as we think through these three instances, we'll see that Jesus is what you might call a serial foundation shaker. He makes a habit out of shaking the foundations. And so let's look at our first instance. Jesus is shaking the intellectual foundations of his hearers. We're told about this in verse 21, that Jesus and his disciples had gone to Capernaum on the Sabbath day, and Jesus was preaching in the local synagogue. Now, while Jesus was preaching in the synagogue, the people who were listening to him were astonished by him. They perceived that he preached as one who had authority. In fact, the people listening to Jesus perceived that Jesus taught them with an authority that exceeded that of the scribes. We see all of this in verse 22. Now, when the people said that Jesus' preaching uh, authority exceeded that of the scribes, what they were really saying is that Jesus' authority exceeded that of the locally trusted religious experts. You see, the scribes would have been a group of men who had dedicated the better part of their lives uh, to reading and studying the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And so when the people of Capernaum said that Jesus taught with an authority that exceeded that of the scribes, this was their way of saying that Jesus taught with an astonishing level of insight, knowledge, wisdom, and power. He was better than any of the preachers or teachers that they had ever heard before. Now, what's important to realize as we think about this instance of Jesus preaching is that he would have been preaching on the Old Testament. It was customary in the synagogues of the day to have a section of the Old Testament scriptures read, and they would have read it out loud like we do in church. And then it would have been followed up by a commentary, would have been followed up by a sermon, which would have been directly related to that text, which had just been read. And so like we do at Redemption Church, the sermon or the preaching is always based on the Bible. It's always about the word of God. We also see this elsewhere in the gospel accounts, that it was Jesus's custom to preach on sections of the Old Testament in the synagogues. And one of the reasons why we had Isaiah 61 read is because there's accounts in the other gospels about Jesus having this text read in a synagogue and then preaching on it. When Jesus preached, he was dealing with old ideas. He was dealing with old stories that had already been around for hundreds of years. The Old Testament was already a very old book by the time that Jesus was ministering. And so the power and authority of Jesus's ministry came not from writing a new book or introducing a new text, but rather from faithfully interpreting and opening up the Old Testament. Jesus was always very careful to show that his ministry and teaching was a continuation of what had happened in the Old Testament. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Jesus did not wow or dazzle his audiences by preaching novelty. He astonished his audiences by showing that the old story still had power, and by showing that the old prophecies were still in effect. 
that they were in fact being fulfilled in their very midst. I mention all of this because as we're thinking about Jesus shaking the foundations, it's easy to think of him as some sort of rebel who is primarily concerned with tearing things down as opposed to someone who stood in continuity with the Old Testament and was trying to build things up. When we think about the revolutionary nature of Jesus's ministry, it's easy to think that his ministry must have been sharply distinguished from the past. But the truth is actually something quite different. You could say that Jesus stood in radical continuity with the Old Testament. The word radical has the Latin word radix as its root, which simply means root. So you could say that at the root level, Jesus stands in continuity with the Old Testament. If we think about this theologically or doctrinally for a moment, we'll see that a lot of this boils down to the fact that God has a single unchanging will. The whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has a single eternal will that he enacts on earth throughout time. The will of the Son is not different to the Father's, nor is it subordinate to the Father's, but rather they have one will, which is part of why Jesus says, I and the Father am one, are one. When Jesus was preaching in Capernaum, he wasn't trying to take things in a new and astonishing direction after the Father had had his chance in the Old Testament, but rather Jesus is enacting the will of God as God in the world. As we think about this, part of why it's so encouraging to us is because it reminds us that Jesus doesn't come out of nowhere. Jesus doesn't saunter onto the scene as some sort of lone ranger, isolated figure. Jesus comes onto the scene anticipated by and attested to by the Old Testament. He comes onto the scene to enact the next phase of God's plan of salvation in the world. One of the things I find so compelling about the Lord Jesus is that he never spoke of himself as an authority unto himself, even though as God he was an authority unto himself. He never said things like, just because I said so. Do this because I said so. Jesus took pains to show that he fit into and fulfilled all that God had been up to until that point. The Apostle Paul would later write, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him, that is Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. When Jesus was preaching in Capernaum, he was honoring the God of the word and also honoring the word of God, standing in radical continuity with what God had already been up to. Now, if Jesus is the head of the church, and if our life and ministry is to be modeled off of Jesus's ministry, is it not the case that our ministry should be defined by what I have called radical continuity, what you might also call a fundamental unity and continuity with God's work throughout time? Should we not take pains to make sure that we are not departing from the work that Jesus began in the world? As a new church plant, it's easy for us to want to make a stir like Jesus did. It's easy for us to want to make an impact like Jesus did. It's easy, us, it's easy for us to want to shake the intellectual foundations of the people who are listening to us. But it is certainly the case, dear friends, that the ends often don't justify the means. We cannot approach the work of church planting nor any other kind of Christian work in a way that radically departs from the revealed will of God. If we want to shake the intellectual foundations of Charlottetown and PEI for the good, then we'll have to do so by bringing the old stories, 
the old truths, the old principles, the old doctrines, the old teachings, and the old gospel to bear on the modern world. Our aim should not be to say what is new, but rather to say what is eternally true. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Even in literature and art, no man, bo- no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth, without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will nine times out of ten become original without ever having noticed it. Might I suggest that we at Redemption Church commit ourselves not to being original, but rather commit ourselves to that which is eternally true, good and beautiful. Which is to say, commit ourselves to God and his ways. I think if you look back through time, you'll see that it was the faithful churches, not the original churches, that truly shook the world. If we move on through our text, we'll see in the second instance that Jesus is also shaking the foundations of the kingdom of darkness. A demon-possessed man appears in the synagogue, and the demons that have possession over him, it seems that there's more than one, they speak in the collective, uh, they speak in the collective. Um, the demon says, or the demons say, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Suffice to say, these demons were a bit rattled. They were a bit shaken by the fact that Jesus had come onto the scene. They were terrified that Jesus had come to destroy them. Now, the demons would have been rattled for two main reasons. First, as we see in their statement, they knew that Jesus was holy, and they knew that they were not. The demons understood that there was a fundamental antagonism between they, who were unholy, and God, who was holy. The demons hated God, and they knew that they had incited the wrath of God, and so God hated them right back. And so therefore, they were terrified. The demons also would have been rattled because Jesus was, in a sense, in enemy territory. You see, the situation back then, and the situation to a certain extent today, is that God allows Satan and his demons a certain amount of liberty and a certain amount of influence in the world. This liberty and influence never negates the sovereign the sovereignty or the power of God, but it is nevertheless very real. And so Jesus sometimes refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. The Apostle John once wrote, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When the Apostle Paul was writing his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, he described their life before coming to faith in Jesus as walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And so on the day that Jesus was preaching in Capernaum, the demons whom he met were probably operating on the truth of the scriptures that I just quoted. They, had probably, they probably assumed that they had rule of the roost in Capernaum, that no one was going to bother them in their devilish work. Uh, but when Jesus arrives, he throws a wrench into their plans. When the demons are confronted by the incarnate Son of God, they probably suspected that something was changing, that something new was afoot. They probably wondered if the foundations of their kingdom of darkness were beginning to shake. As we noted earlier in our series on the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus was preaching, he was proclaiming the inauguration of a new kingdom. Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand. Now what's important for us to understand is that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness are opposed. 
They are at complete cross purposes with one another. And so when Jesus comes into Capernaum, establishing the kingdom of God, the demons are terrified. The demons know that Jesus is the king of a greater kingdom and that he has entered into enemy territory and he likely wants to take it for himself. We see this in the life of the demon-possessed man. Jesus delivered or he saved the man from demon possession. He claims him back from the demons. He casts the demons away. And when Jesus casts out the demons, we see on the one hand his compassion and his love for the man who he's just delivered. But on the other hand, we see that he's at complete cross purposes with these demons. And so the kingdom of darkness is revealed as weak and feeble in the face of Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I think it's remarkable that all Jesus has to do is say, get out, and they do. (laughs) They can hardly put up a fight. I also think it's significant, uh, and we see this in verses 25 and 34, that Jesus commands the, the demons to be silent. He stops their mouths and prevents them from speaking. Now, one of the reasons why I think this is so significant is because lying is one of the favorite pastimes of demons. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. And so Jesus stops the mouths of the demons, I think partially, because he wanted people to hear the good news of the kingdom, not the shrieking, terrified lies of the demons. Now, in this story, everything that the demons say is true, but as we see in stories like the temptation of Jesus, Satan and his demons will even use the truth to try to lead people into lies. You know, as I was thinking about Jesus shaking the foundations of the kingdom of darkness, I thought of a verse from that grand old hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. The verse goes like this. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices, loud your anthems raise. Not only does Jesus make the foundations of hell shake with fear, but so do does the people of God. So too does the church. We, the church, as those who have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son, strike fear into the heart of every demon. When we gather like we have this morning, we gather as citizens of heaven, as subjects of the kingdom of God, as subjects of that kingdom which is overcoming the world and casting away darkness. As we gather this morning in the name of Jesus, we shake the very foundations of the kingdom of darkness. Now, finally, in the last instance, we see that Jesus is shaking the foundations of the fallen world. We see in our last few verses that Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and also heals and delivers many others as well. In these few verses, we get a small glimpse of what you might call Jesus' work of re-creation. You may not have heard of Jesus' work spoken of in these terms before, but it's most certainly true that part of Jesus' work was the recreation of the world. In his work of establishing the kingdom of God, Jesus is reorienting, reordering, and recreating the world so that it aligns with the perfection that God had laid out in the Garden of Eden. When someone enters into the kingdom of God, they can say to themselves, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As Jesus went through the world, he went through the world making things new in a variety of ways, returning things back to the perfection that was intended for them. 
When Jesus is healing the sick and casting out demons, he's affecting a series of small reversals, which overturn the effects of sin and the fall. Now, when I say the fall, I'm talking about the fall of humanity into sin. Sickness is a result of, of the fall, and demon possession is a result of the fall. So when Jesus reverses these realities, he's overcoming in a variety of ways the effects of the fall. These healings, of course, are not permanent, which is to say Peter's mother-in-law and others eventually went on to die. But these healings do foreshadow a greater and more complete work that Jesus would eventually bring about. These healings are almost like clues along the path, which lead us up to the truth that Jesus will one day completely overthrow the effects of the fall and make all things new. The old heavens and the old earth will pass away and the new perfect creation will come to be. The healing ministry of Jesus reveals to us that this old world, this old world of ours, which is sick and dying, it reveals that this old world has a foundation which is crumbling apart. But the healing ministry of Jesus also shows that God, through Jesus, is giving birth to a new world in our midst. Already Jesus has started to make things new. The culmination of this vision, the culmination of this renewing work, can be found in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, that is Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Think of Peter's mother-in-law. Also, as a side note, it shows you that Peter was married. (laughs) He had a mother-in-law. On a perfectly normal day in first century Capernaum, she was healed by Jesus. She got up and served him, probably giving him a bit of lunch. But a few months or a few years later, she died. And God willing, she believed like her son-in-law did. And she went to be with the Lord. Now on this day, she's perfectly healed. And she serves not in a little house by the Sea of Galilee, but serves in the celestial courts of heaven. In a variety of ways during his earthly ministry, Jesus shook the foundations of the fallen world. He had these small little reversals, which gave us clues to the great reversal that he would one day effect. He showed that this world of ours was getting old and that it would come one day to crumble away and be replaced by a new one. And so first Christ... And then his church stand as a symbol of the new creation in this old world. We who have been healed, who have been delivered, who have been saved, stand as testimonies to Jesus' recreating work in the world. And so, dear friends, I simply say, behold your Lord. Behold the Lord Jesus who shakes the intellectual foundations of the world, who shakes the foundations of the kingdom of darkness, and who shakes the foundations of the fallen world. Behold your Lord who is building a new kingdom in our midst, a kingdom which is intellectually satisfying, which is reasonable and sensible, which is filled with powerful and true ideas, which is filled with truth 
goodness and beauty. And also behold the kingdom that he's creating, which is a, a kingdom opposed to the kingdom of darkness. Right? A kingdom, as we read in Revelation 21, which has no suffering or crying or, or mourning. And behold your Lord who is slowly but surely, and one day definitely, reversing the effects of the fall. Right? C.S. Lewis once said that every sad thing comes undone. And that's what the Lord is doing in our midst. And so I finished with this poem, it's a very short poem, uh, by Francis Schaeffer. To eat, to breathe, to beget, is this all there is? Chance configuration of Adam against Adam, of God against God? I cannot believe it. Come, Christian triune God who lives, here I am, shake the world again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we make the prayer of Francis Schaeffer our prayer. We pray that you would shake the world again. We pray that you would use your church uh, to challenge uh, the status quo that we see around us. We pray that you would help us to shake the intellectual foundations of the people who we meet, to shake the, king the foundations of the kingdom of darkness, and to shake the foundations of this fallen world. But Father, we know that we can only do this if we are faithful to your son Jesus, and anointed and empowered by your Holy Spirit. And so, gracious Father, we pray that you would put the gospel on our lips. We pray that you would transform us into uh, holier and holier people uh, by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would use us, uh, weak and feeble as we are, to establish your kingdom in this world. We pray these things in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.